Imagine a world where men stepped up and answered God's call to reach their full potential. Imagine a world where men put their faith and trust in God unwaveringly and without qualification. Imagine a world where men lived out God's purpose for them in everything they do. It's not my credit to take explores the awe and wonder of how God shows up in the lives of strong, principled Christian men from all walks of life. Get ready to laugh, to cry, and to be transformed. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Slover, faithful husband, loving father, loyal friend, and unapologetically Christian. Welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Hey, Mitch, how are you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you. <laughs> I, inter- I interrupted you taking a swig of your coffee for those of you who aren't I watching on YouTube. There, but <laughs> yeah, for those who aren't watching on YouTube, I mean, right when you put it to your lips, I said hello. <laughs> Just the way it works. You know, one of the things I describe about this podcast is you're going to laugh and you're going to cry and you're going to be transformed. I think we covered two of the three just, <laughs> just then. <laughs> we'll, we'll just see how many of those we can check off before we're done. That's outstanding. I'm not editing that out, Mitch, at all. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today is Mitch Majeski. I recently had the opportunity to co-facilitate a leadership workshop in Colorado with Mitch, and I was beyond impressed by his content knowledge and ability to influence and inspire the workshop participants. As a former pastor, he knows the challenge and the beauty of uniting diverse perspectives around a common focus, and he's skilled at preparing wise, confident leaders for that task. Most notably, Mitch is an expert storyteller, which allows him to mobilize people to become better versions of themselves so they can be better for the people that come into their world. Currently, he is a consultant for Peak Solutions, a leadership development consultancy based in Fort Collins, Colorado. He also serves, he's also served on a variety of boards, including the Colorado Governor's Clergy Council, the Colorado State Stadium Advisory Group, and the Coloradoan Newspaper. And his greatest joy is going on adventures with his wife of 29 years and their four kids. Mitch, welcome to the It's Not My Credit to Take podcast. Good to see you, Ed. Really glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I mean, the universe kind of has kind of conspired against us for for a little bit, you know, coordinating schedules, you know, you know, making you know adjustments. So, really excited uh, to have this conversation. So, why don't you start off by talking about your background and how you ended up to where you are currently in your life? Well, that you know, I'll try to make that bearable because it's a long portrait. <laughs> I. I actually, I, I was born and raised in the Twin Cities, grew up in Minnesota, um, and I went to Iowa State University, uh, met my wife there. We moved to Colorado in 1995 uh, for me to get my master's degree in civil engineering, and I worked in that industry for uh, several years. I, I taught at CSU as a research assistant and graduate teaching assistant, and then worked for a couple of firms here in town, mostly in the mining and water resources industry. Along the way... You know, both my wife and I, we grew up, you know, sort of traditional Lutheran kids from the Midwest. We went to church every Sunday. Um, but we, we, there were some things about the Christian faith that we did not really understand. We got involved with a local church here that was just a non-denominational church and a church planting movement. Um, and so it, it involved people pretty quickly into, uh, you know, serving and leadership and eventually, um, I think I, I probably really started to understand the true uh, meaning of the Christian faith in that church and, and, and embraced that. And then over time, they had to develop their own leaders from within the congregation. And so I led you know ministries, small groups, those kinds of things, and eventually um, was asked to consider coming on staff um, while I was an engineer. Um, my first job as a church staff when I was the church secretary. Um, that was a very uh, difficult conversation to have with my family and friends, as you can imagine. I had just, I bet. <laughs> you know, seven years of college and then uh, took a job about a 70% pay cut to be a church secretary. <laughs> and, but I honestly felt really compelled. Um, and I think there's some things I've learned since then, but I, I think I felt really compelled to live, you know, something it's, it's, it's not my life to live. It's, it's, it's for somebody else. And, and I, I really wanted to, to make some 
choices that reflected that conviction and that choice was presented and we jumped on it. And then a couple of years later, I was actually pretty hesitant to do this. I was, I was even crafting my resignation letter because that church secretary role did not fit me at all. And I was ready to move on, go back to engineering right about that. I mean, literally crafting a resignation letter. I felt, uh, um, well, I had a conversation with the leadership of that church. They wanted me to consider becoming a pastor. And um, I initially said no. After some reflection and some time in prayer, it seemed very, very clear that that was the next step. So I became a pastor. I was a pastor for 17 years um, at th that church here in Fort Collins, Colorado. And I often tell, and you heard me say this, Ed, in front of the group that we were with, I often tell people, um, I... I think that what I have to give to the world right now is not because of success, but because of some pretty stupid failures and mm -hmm. maybe, maybe not stupid failures. I, I probably should give myself a little bit more grace, but I think there were, there were potholes that I was stepping in both internally with the story I was telling myself and, and the way I was leading that just were making the leadership in that local church untenable. I, I had just created an environment, and I and I mean that I was a part of creating a system that was just unsustainable, and and so a lot of, of, of what I share now in my newest role comes from some things I I would hope people would avoid that I did in my life as a leader of a fairly large organization, twelve hundred people. Um, so I six years ago left that ministry mostly because there's no scandal or controversy. I just realized I was a part of creating a system that was unsustainable and I wasn't going to be able to change it. Uh, I had to just extricate myself. So I did for the sake of the, the health, life and health of that ministry and for the sake of life and health of my family and, you know, my own psyche. And, but I didn't, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do afterwards. And Richard Fagerlin, our mutual friend, um, who started Peak Solutions 21 years ago, was a part of that church. And we had been discussing whether or not we would work together in the years to come. And um, and so it just turned out, I mean, the stars aligned. And he was gracious enough to give me a client right out of the gate within about a month of when I was there. And he was, well, gracious, maybe we should say stupid enough. And, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And it was a pretty large engagement and a pretty serious high stress, high stakes engagement. So anyway, it's, you know, this last six years, I feel like it's been a really great opportunity to, to get involved with people, get to know people and help them with their leadership, but help them with their story and how that's shaping the way they lead and, and, um, and help them see what I didn't see when I was you know, messing up, I guess. And so that's been really gratifying. I really enjoy the work right now. So that's my latest career is, leadership consultant for the last six years. It's an interesting, it's an interesting trajectory in life. So you go to school to become a civil engineer and then you end up a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's a, I mean, th that's not a linear progression at all, Mitch. And, but you referenced that you, you felt called. Yeah. Now I know I've, I've shared with you the call to the it's not my credit to take ministry. I didn't set out to do this, probably much like you didn't set out to become a church secretary and later a pastor. What what did that feel like for you? I mean, how did how did you know that this was a legitimate calling? Well, I'll tell you, I don't know. You know, I, I'm going to I'm going to try to tackle this, Ed. But, you know, the calling is so mysterious. And so yeah. I'll give you a little bit of my experience and then hopefully your listeners can kind of piece together. Do they see any similarities and what can they learn from that? But I, I'll start with reticence. I was not interested in becoming a, uh, a pastor. I, you know, I think I was hesitant with the church secretary thing, but I was just probably young and gregarious and crazy enough to just go ahead and give it a shot. But by the time a couple of years had rolled by, I was pretty clearly not interested in becoming a pastor. I was, my heels were in the ground. Um, and I, I think the mantra, you know, this is, we are the sum of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And yeah. the, the story I was telling about myself is um, 
you know, I don't want to lose heart. I know that this is going to be really, really difficult and I don't want to lose heart. And I, and, and I'll just be really plain spoken with you about this. I, I had sort of a deadline to make that decision. I spent some time just reading the new Testament, praying while I was reading the new Testament, mostly just repeating over and over in my head. I don't know. I don't know. I just don't want to lose heart. God, I don't want to lose heart. And, um, I was confronted um, with a with a passage. It was First John two fourteen. He said, "I write these things, or write this to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you." And I write to you, young men, because you're strong, and the word of God lives in you. He says it twice, and I don't know for whatever reason that it just felt like that hit like a thunderbolt. I don't, and 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 it just felt like I, I there was an unavoidable coincidence and an unavoidable impact on my soul. It like hit right where I was at. I think what I was worried about is I was going to lose heart because I didn't have what it takes. Mm. And you know, the irony of this story, and I think I need to point this out. I did burn out. (laughs) I'm just going to say that I did burn out. And so could you say, you know, the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. Is that really true? Should I still be a pastor? I don't have a good, easy answer for that. I, you know, I, I would say that I feel still feel called to support the life and the faith of people, but maybe in a different way. And I don't, that's not a cop out. I I feel like there's times where the conversations I'm able to have around people's vocation get much more meaningful, much more quickly because they spend 60 hours a week doing that. And it's one of the things that haunts them and keeps them up at night. And so it feels like a doorway to existential conversations. And I feel like I have a lot of those. And so I don't think I've ever really departed from the fact that God wants me to be involved in supporting the life and the faith and the stories of others. Um, I just realized that in the context I was in as a pastor, it had to come to a close. But back to your question on call, it was... It seems almost cliche, but the impression on my heart was one was like, if I avoid this, I'm probably not going to be able to hear anything ever again. You know, it's like, this is so obvious that if I just say, oh, that must have been bad pizza last night, there's probably (laughs) not anything else that could get a hold of my attention from that point forward. It was just that it landed that profoundly. Yeah. One of the things I posted on social media a couple of weeks ago was this message that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Yeah. Do yeah. you agree with that statement? Yeah, I do. And, 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 go, and to go back to my story, I think God did that. I mean, there were, you know, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't, I had no business. If I was to, if I was to advise that organization about whether or not they should ask this young man to be a pastor, I would say you're absolutely crazy. <laughs> that's, that's insane. There's no good reason for that. But along and and along the way, I just got to tell you, I felt like God presented opportunities. He he challenged, he pushed, he tested me. I was thrown in the deep waters plenty of times. And over time, I felt like I I did develop some ability to care for, shepherd, tend to lead a flock of people. Um, but I did, yeah, I I didn't know how I was going to get there. I didn't have a prescribed path and it it did happen over time. And I think if I look back on my story, there's times where I departed from the things that I really knew or really challenged or cherished. I think that's what caused me to step in some potholes, expediency over meaning. Um, You know, like this is, this is faster, easier, you know, more important. We'll get into that more. I'm sure at some point, but um I think if, if I did have any, you know, trips along the way in being qualified, it was because I was ignoring things I knew God wanted me to walk in. Mm. You reference potholes that you stepped in while you were a pastor leading the church. And you, you also described that it, it reached a point where it was just simply un, untenable and you had to step away from it. Yeah. Like most of us, we, we learn better, for lack of a better word, from our failures rather than our successes. And you described that too. Can you, can you describe one, uh, one of your 
how you would say a failure in leadership during that role and what you learned from it and how you've been better by virtue of having learned that. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'll, I'll give you a category and there's all kinds of different behaviors that flew out of this category. But I think there's a temptation that leaders will face, whether they they're leading in ministry or leading an organization where your highest purpose is to continue to exist. Um, maybe we'll call that survivalism. I don't know what you'd call that, but it, 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 you have this thing that you've created. And, or, well, it had a part in creating. And maybe the better way to say it, you think you created, <laughs> right? It's, it's, your, it's your baby and it represents your life work. And as much as you would tell people, that's not my identity, it's pretty hard to extricate your identity from this thing this structure, yeah. this organization, what it does. And then there's all, and, you know, to extend it to some noble things, there's all kinds of people's livelihoods and faith and, and all kinds of different things that could be connected to this thing, this organization. So now you've got something that represents why you exist. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to make that step. You've got something that many people depend upon it becomes too big to fail at that point. And now the highest purpose is just to keep the thing going. So what happens is, is that when something needs to be adjusted, something needs to be disrupted, it, it needs to change fundamentally, which there is this constant ebb and flow between, you know, creating something, having it deconstructed and having new life rise out of that. You just are resistant to that, you know, deconstruction. And I don't mean theological deconstruction. I just mean the way you're doing things needs to be interrogated, disrupted, tried again. But it, nope, I'm going to keep doing vacation Bible school like I've always done it. We're going to keep, you know, the, the Sunday mornings like we've always done it. And we just need more volunteers. And the problem is the volunteers, you know, they just don't want to live for God. And so we're going to bark at them. We're going to shame them. We're going to do whatever we can to get them to be a part of this finely tuned piece of machinery that I spent my life building that may actually be irrelevant. And so all of a sudden I'm existing to exist. And it's like, it's like your wisdom just shuts off. It just shuts off. And so you start making decisions to survive that, that are, are very, very distant from your original calling and purpose for the whole organization. It's a really interesting psychology when you think about it, because all of the risks that you took to get the thing started in the first place are exactly what the risks you don't take to keep it going. Am I internalizing that correctly? That's, that's what I experienced. I don't know if that's a universal psychological phenomenon, but I was happy to, I mean, listen to my story. You mean when you're 26 years old and you have to look your parents in the face, I was 24. You have to look your parents in the face and say, thanks for spending all of that money on my master's degree in civil engineering. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I paid for my master's degree, but they paid for my bachelor's degree. Yeah. Thanks for spending all of those tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to take a $17,000 a year job as the church secretary at a church that doesn't have a building. <laughs> Lutheran mom and dad. Did you have, so Mitch, just for the sake of asking, did you have your head formally checked whenever you yeah, made well, checked. it was hard on my family it was really hard on my family so that's an enormous amount of risk it's a you know i remember telling i hadn't finished my master's thesis yet i remember telling my guiding major professor hey i'm going to finish my master's thesis and then i'm going to get my master's degree and go off and be the church secretary and I remember the look on his face. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I mean, the risk associated with those kinds of conversations and those kinds of decisions. And then eventually, even at my, against my internal sense of, I don't know if I can do this, becoming a church pastor, risk after risk after risk after risk, not to mention the risks of relationships and the challenges of, of ministry early on and not actually being formally trained. I was... I jump right in. And then I became radically risk averse in some ways. Um, I still would, you know, I could be kind of pugilistic sometimes and challenge what I felt like was wrong out there in us and in the world. But 
But for the most part, my major driving force was keep this thing running. Don't run it off the rails. So as you were, as you were talking, because you referenced, you know, deconstruction, you know, construction, deconstruction, it, it reminds me of the Franciscan friar and author Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. where in his book, in Falling Upward, he describes, now this is really largely in the context of midlife crisis in many ways, where when we look back on the first part of our life, the first half of our life, it's the construction phase, right? So we're, we're, we're kids, we're developing, we, we, We learn what good looks like from our parents and the adults in our lives. We gravitate to our social circle, which is important because we have to learn how to cooperate in the world. And then we graduate high school or college and then get out in the world. And our lives largely become about external validation, money, status, and it's all ego-based. And it's an extraordinarily important phase in our life. But at some point, we realize that that's fundamentally unfulfilling. And it requires us to in many ways, deconstruct that first half of our life to gain perspective in order to reconstruct the second half of our life, which is a life generally of service and, uh, and, and you know, building community and legacy for lack of a better word. Yeah. What's interesting upon reflection, as I've really spent some time thinking about this idea is that the construction phase while grounded in ego requires a ton of risk-taking yeah because we're trying to figure this thing out and what's interesting about you know typical midlife crisis and i love your take on this is that if we don't embrace the deconstruction part in order to reconstruct the next phase what we end up doing is doubling down on the first half of our life which involves no additional risk-taking because we've already done it what's your general assessment of of that idea well i I think that we have a force of gravity that gets stronger and stronger as we get older that resists risk. The fear of death and and impending death, psychologically, this is my take on it, I think it creates this sense of play it safe. Um, Don't lose anything. You got to, you know, our, and I'm, I'm in this, I mean, a lot of people are in this, our fascination with having enough for retirement, you know, it's, it's like, what's that all about? And I think there's some, and I don't want to over swing the club here. There's some wisdom in being prepared. Yeah. But then there's, then there's psychosis, you know, where it's like, <laughs> to the point where it's like, you can't, you can't actually enjoy the present moment because you're so worried about not ruining the future. And, and, I think that force of gravity grows over time. And, and, the, and, the, and the, I think you hit on it. Life is found in some le- level of meaningful risk. Yeah. You, we, we've got to expose ourselves to some meaningful risk with our meaningful authority in the world, whatever God gives us. And so we take whatever God gives us in terms of authority, expose it to meaningful risk, for the sake of others and for the sake of experiencing relationship with God in the midst of it. I mean, that's the other thing I, 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 we can go way into this at some point, but I think that one of the things that I've discovered on reflection is I was doing so much for God that I did very, very little with God and the risk exposes to moments where we're, where we're with him in ways when we, when, you know, I'm going to build barns and store away and all of this stuff. And, and God says, this night, your life will be taken from you because all of that storage, all of that preparation, all of that stuff removes not a, de- not a dependence upon the gifts of God, but a dependence on God himself. God, you know, the ending of the whole thing is the dwelling of God will be with man. Yeah. The beginning of the story was God was with man in the garden. And we're doing everything we can to avoid the, the naked necessity of with God. And I and, and so I, I I do think that we have to be really, really careful that, you know, in our in our older years, the gold of our older years is we there's some treasuring of the with that we can have. Mm. 
but the prerequisite for that is you gotta you gotta let some stuff go. You gotta you gotta be willing to deconstruct. You gotta be willing to look back and go and interrogate yourself along the way. Maybe I need to adjust my approach. That is extreme reinventing yourself. And I take and I say this as a person who reinvented himself at age 47. Reinventing yourself is not easy. No. I don't mean reinventing everything right down to the foundations. I just mean. You know, there's there's stories that I have in my head that may or may not actually be helpful. And do I give myself the chance to interrogate that and then respond accordingly and step into some meaningful risk and experience life with God? Um, I, I think most of us are just missing that opportunity. Yeah. A, couple, uh, a year or so ago, I was sitting with my wife and I said, you know, I think I'm doing this midlife crisis thing wrong because I haven't divorced you yet and I haven't bought a Bugatti and then about a week later, we were sitting in the exact same spot. And I looked at her, I'm like, you know, I think maybe I'm doing this midlife crisis thing right because I haven't divorced you yet and yeah. I haven't bought a Bugatti. Yeah. And what really occurred to me is this idea, and you touched on it just framed differently, is dying to oneself. Yeah. And so what advice would you give someone in 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 finding a balance that's livable where you can engage in the process of dying to oneself for reinvention sure. while simultaneously quote storing away for the future yeah. and then woven within that and this is a layered discussion no doubt woven within within that is not waiting to have an impact on you know, your own life, the life of the people that come into your life, and then, you know, the, you know, the community or world at large. Yeah. Wow. There's, yeah. Could you, get, <laughs> could, you throw, could you throw something else on there? Like my wife tells me I'm a bit of a deep thinker, Mitch. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a deep fire of, of a lot of thought. <laughs> Let me start with something that I think, you know, in terms of the balance thing that's been helpful for me. I don't know if this okay. is for anybody else, but I'm just going to go, I'm going to go all the way out there. I mean, it's just like, we're going to open the kimono. Are you ready for this, Ed? Yes, sir. Okay. I'm a prepper. All right. A little bit. I mean, I got full blown. Wait, prepper. wait do, do you bury canned goods? In no, your I don't bury canned goods. <laughs> I don't bury canned goods. But I, I do have... You have a bunker, don't you? And no, I do have <laughs> food, just in case. And I have <laughs> I have thought through scenario planning about power. <laughs> so let me just say that. Now, I have... You know, it's interesting. You, there's a spectrum of people who are preparing for emergency, you know? Yeah. And I'm probably <laughs> on one end of the spectrum. And the folks with the bunker and the, and the cans in the background are on the other end. But I am... I'm just going to say it. I'm a prepper. Um <laughs> So, um, I have a friend who we talk, we laugh about this and talk about this all the time. And he's a, he's a Catholic believing person. And, and he said, you know, when you really start thinking about it, he said, there's no way to prepare for all of the scenarios. When you start thinking about all of the scenarios and the worst case scenario, which is, you know, possible, you couldn't do enough. I mean, you, you you do start to get to where you're burying stuff in the ground and building bunkers. And then even that's not enough, you know, then it's like, how much ammo do you store? You just start getting a little crazy. And he said, you know, I, he referred back to the widow's jar of, of oil. And he's like, I just need to have enough that God can multiply. Hmm. And, and it's just interesting because he's, and, and what he said was, I want, I don't want to be accused of being naive to what I see, you know, and, 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 and you know, because I have a responsibility to read the signs and then respond accordingly. And I have responsibility for, for the folks that are under my care and that I love, but I cannot, I am limited. So I cannot prepare for every eventuality for every person I care for. That's absolutely impossible. Yeah. So, is what I'm doing reflective of me acknowledging the balance between my responsibility and God's responsibility and acknowledging at all that God is responsible ultimately. And so, 
I suppose we could get into a really interesting conversation of is three months verse of food or is it six months of food? Where should God take over? But I'm not, <laughs> not gonna, it's just, there's a, there's a sort of mindset that that's there that I want to just take and extract back to this conversation that we're having. At what point is my trying to hold up what I've built in the first part of my life? Um, no longer acknowledging that I'm not completely in control. Mm. Um, there's a line in there somewhere. And, and I think what I would encourage people is we all have to get increasingly sensitive to the stories that we're telling ourselves. We have to be able to like, we have to have safe places to just say them out loud and hear us, hear us say them. This is why journaling is so important, I think. We got to find ways to express or write or do something where I can, and, it, and, and I think the, the smaller the audience, the better, because then we're, you know, we're tempted to shape and form that for the audience. But what's the most unedited version of what's on repeat in my head? I think that's important to see. And if I'm listening carefully, you can see when I say things like I have to or else. I'll be aware of I have to or else. What's this, what, Do you really have to? I have no choices. Is that really true? Um, no one else will come through. You know, is that really true? The, the, you have to really check on that because there's a line in there somewhere where it's no longer responsible maintenance of, you know, you know what God has given you to take care of. And, and that line is usually when I stop acknowledging my limitations. Hmm. And, and I stop acknowledging that, that um, I'm going to need some alien help if I'm going to get through this. Um, at that point, I've probably, I've probably gotten, I'm building bunkers and storing cans in the ground. And that's probably not healthy. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay composed here, Mitch, with the whole prepper thing um, and, yeah, and reserving, reserving judgment. Right. And reserving judgment to the extent that I can. <laughs> wait, wait, hey, hold on. Hold on. I got something probably right here. <laughs> okay. What we... So for those of you who aren't watching on YouTube, you're going to have to check out YouTube because Mitch just here. disappeared. Okay, from... Here's an advertisement for, you know, he's got a box. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is right here. Ready hour. So we, this is, you know, you're getting sponsored by ready hour today. There Black we go. Hey, see food stories right there. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe that's a sponsor of the It's Not My Credit State podcast. I'll have to I'll have to reach out to them <laughs> for sure. You know, you 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 brought up something that has been top of mind for me recently. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the author Michael Singer. He he among uh, among other bestsellers, he's written what he he wrote what's called the Untethered Soul. He also uh, talked about the Surrender Experiment. Now, he is a spiritual person, but doesn't necessarily ascribe to any particular faith. Uh, in in fact, he over the years he developed in Florida what's called the Temple of the Universe, and it's accepting of all you know uh, spiritual traditions and philosophies. One of the things he talks about in Untethered Soul is the, the, the voice in our head being just this constant thing. And if you were able to take that voice in your head and put that person on the couch next to you, yeah. that person would just annoy the living snot out of you. And those are, I think, with what you referenced, the stories we tell ourselves, not being good enough, fear of failure, you know, your, your, your perfectionism. I mean, it's like all these self-limiting things. And he also talks about, for us, really grounding is to be an observer of that voice rather than participating with the voice. So how do you go about discerning where you start and stop and Holy Spirit starts and stops? Well, I mean, that's, that's a lifelong journey hmm. because I think there's some things that we, we almost hold dear. They're precious to us, you know, even if they're not helpful to us. 
And I, because they're familiar, I don't know if it's because they're familiar or because we're, our identity is so associated with it. Our mental pathways are so ingrained. I'm not sure, but I think there are things that, and I, and I just, you know, if we just pause for a second and have a moment as your listeners are listening, this is kind of a moment here. What are you telling yourself that you know is not healthy, but you cherish? Hmm. Can you repeat that? What are you telling yourself that you know is not healthy, but you cherish it? And I think we all have a few of these things. And those are the things that are hardest to dislodge. Because, because there are some things, you know, there's those thoughts that roll through your head. And you're like, well, that's, that's wild. I'm not paying attention to that. That's easy yeah. one to just disregard. Um, and then there's, there's thoughts that I see it coming. I know where this is going to go. I know it's going to send me on a depressive, you know, self, you know, hating or whatever, or proud, arrogant, you know, um, self-promoting road, whatever it might be, you can kind of sense that it's not great, but you just love to entertain it. You just mm -hmm. love to put it on repeat. I, these come up when I'm running. I don't know if, if this happens with you, but I, I'm on a jog. and they are not a runner, Mitch. Some of the worst. I'm just so glad that there is no AI out there that can actually determine what's going on here and broadcast it to the world. Because I'd be a monster thrown in jail, especially when I'm on a run. I don't know what it is. But those are the times where those cherished things that are unhealthy just keep getting put on repeat. So what do you do with them? Because you you sort of want to hold on to them. It, you know, to, it's Gollum's precious. It's literally mm -hmm. eating your soul alive, but it's precious to you. And I think you need outside help with that. I think you need people, you know, people, voices, words, vocabulary that disrupts that a little bit. So you can see the pain that it's actually causing you and others. You got to ask for sight, I think. I mean, we, we, we need spiritual sight around that. Like, I don't think that this is something we can see on our own because it is, we are Gollum with that little precious ring. But I think one, one metric I'm always using, and I was taught this early on in faith is, um, watch out for the accuser of the brethren. So I think that's in revelation. They talk about Satan being thrown into the fire and call him the accuser of the brethren. So he's just constantly accusing us um, over and over and over again. So if there's an accusational spirit towards me or towards others, it's probably not the Holy Spirit. Got it. And, and, and so that's a starting point for me. And if it's not the Holy Spirit, then let's just take that to a logical conclusion. It's probably not going in a good place. It's probably destructive. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the physiology of the brain is that we create neurochemical habit. Yeah. You know, when we're, when we're babies and even as, you know, when we're three years old or younger, we have something like 200 billion neurons and you and I today have half that number. Yeah. Now we didn't get dumber. Our brains just thinks about, you know, thinks about efficiency and en energy con conservation more than anything else. And yet over the course of our life, we cut these neurochemical grooves, which lead to what you described as those things that are unhelpful but yeah. we still cherish and we cherish them because there's some payoff associated yeah. with that. You know, the, the cost hasn't yet outweighed whatever perceived payoff that we, you know, that we have. How would you coach someone then when, it, when they hold those unhelpful beliefs that they do cherish, how would you help them rewrite their personal story or narrative to you know, live more productively, to be able to put those things down because there is recognition that they are in fact unhelpful. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things that, that help me. One is let's take that narrative line to its logical conclusion. Mm. Let's just, let's just go full. Let's just go. All right. If you believe it, let's say that's true. Let's say we entertain that as true. Let's say we put that on a repeat as true. Let's say we ask everybody else around us to accept that as true. Um, and you live from that as though it's truth. Where, what decisions are you likely to make? How is that likely to impact 
your world and the people around you and yourself. Where does this actually go? It's fascinating that on one end of the spectrum, we're worried about whether or not we're going to have enough money in our 10th year of retirement. But on the other end of the spectrum, we're not worried at all about this present mental pattern and where it's actually taking us. Because, mm. you know, the road to hell, I think Jordan Peterson says this, is a one step at a time thing. Yeah. And you're either progressing towards something that looks like hell, approximates hell or you're progressing towards something that approximates heaven. And it is our mental state that actually chooses the steps in either direction. And we can be really forward thinking about our finances, but absolutely completely divorced from forward thinking when it comes to our mental patterns. And so I just try to help people come to their logical conclusion. Another thing that I'll say sometimes to myself and to others is if you were watching what is happening right now on a movie screen and you were the main character, what would you be cheering that main character on to do or to think? You know, that moment in the rom-com when you're just like, tell her you love her, you knucklehead. <laughs> just say something. And you're like, why isn't he just saying, look at her poor little puppy eyes. Just tell her you love her. Well, how many tell her you love her moments have I had in my life? I've had dozens. And and, and it's just a mental framework that helps me step outside, you know, um, stand outside of my thoughts instead of inside of my thoughts um, and just go, okay, well, wait a minute. What on earth? Would I be cheering my character on to do? Well, go do that because there's probably a good inclination there. Um, so that's another framework. Another one I, that I often use, you and I have talked about is, is whether or not, you know, you're, you're rolling out some narrative that's a victimhood narrative. Yeah. Because that victimhood narrative is extremely powerless um, and, and really, if you look at anyone who absorbs that and watch the trajectory of their life, like, this is close to my, you know, my first mental game is a trajectory of life thing. But I, I get, you know, once people start to see the difference between an ownership narrative and a victim narrative, narrative, that's a good little tool for them as well to go, wait a minute. If that's, yeah, that sounds like a victim narrative. Move back to my first principle. Where does that take me? Yeah. Uh, and then second principle, what would I be cheering my character on to do right now? You know, just kind of those things on repeats. There's some handholds. Yeah, that's so good. I, I, I like how you systematize that. One of the things that, that popped into my head as you were describing that is as, as Christ followers, we're, we tend to be really, really good at taking liberties when we engage in conversations uh, on on topics where we're genuinely trying to be helpful. Unfortunately, in that process, we can overdo those strengths and become in, overly off-putting to the person that we're trying to help. How do you strike that balance? Like if, if someone invites you into the conversation uh, about something that is unhelpful to their life, but they still cherish it, yeah. How do you how do you navigate, you know, taking it to the logical conclusion, you know, being a cheerleader for the main character and having and really trying to empower them to take ownership rather than fall prey to victim? But how, how do you navigate that one? Well, I'm 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 searching for a, a quote here. Um, yeah, this is from Lilla Watson. I love this quote. Um and I and I'll, and I'll give you this is actually this this is about to unlock something that as a consultancy we have really come to land on solidly as maybe our best contribution and it's actually the you know get to the punchline it's a no contribution but let me just start with this quote okay uh, Lilla Watson says this if you have come here to help me you are wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Mm. And, you know, there's that, I think what she's hitting at is if, if, if there's this power dynamic, like you're the savior and I'm the one that needs saving there, that's probably not going to actually be helpful for either one of us. Yeah. But if somehow our working together is liberation for both of us, you for your issues, me for your issues, then let's work together. And, so when it comes to helping people, and I'm so careful to even use the word helping people, 
discover their stories, try to interrogate their stories, select a new story, um, all of that. I, I, I have to shut up and ask better questions. I, I, you heard me say this, Ed, but I, you know, one of my, one of my life's mentors, um, dear, dear man, just, you know, we didn't get a chance to spend much time together, but he probably had the one of the highest impacts in, in my life. Um, he's told me once, Mitch, the first half of your life is going to be defined by the quality of your answers. Cause you got to have answers to the problems. You've got to come to those solutions. You got to be able to work the math. But the second half of your life is going to be determined largely by the quality of your questions because your questions invite other people's agency, capacity, discovery, all of these things. And, and so when we're quote unquote helping people in this whole process of selecting a better narrative, disrupting it so that they don't just exist to exist, et cetera. What I've recognized is my job is to provide space with good questions and shut my mouth. Got it. And, and really give people the opportunity to, to, to feel freedom, to explore that verbally um, with somebody that they can, they can feel reasonably safe with to jump up and down and affirm when I feel like, okay, let me just tell you how that landed on me, how that helped me. Sometimes that's really helpful for them to hear is your, what you just said helped me with something. That's about all I'll say. Okay. Let's keep going. Now there'll be times where they'll say, all right, I, I'm, you know, in my clients, I'm paying for your advice. Can you please, <laughs> and there's right. a place to give advice, but I think we just, we got to be really, really careful because what people do, well, I don't want to be in a power dynamic. I want my liberation in some ways to be bound up with theirs. And, and, and at the same time, so I want to be, I want to be careful with that. Because they're going to own what they discover far more than what I give them. Yes. And, and then we get, to, we get to somehow discover together. And there's a bond that's built in being in discover together that's not the same bond as teacher-student. And so in my consulting practice, which is just an extension of, I think, just life in general, yeah. I'm trying to be better and better at that. Yeah. I, I would have thought I had a follow-up question uh, you know, on that particular point, but you, I, how you summarize that makes makes so much sense. And I really like the reference to the first half of our life being really about finding answers and yeah. then the second, you know, getting into questions. I know, I, I, I know in this season of my life, what I'm, what I'm finding is that my questions are, are just coming like a freaking fire hydrant yeah and right. and have you have you found that now that you're like like me on sort of the the, the you know the the second half of life where it, it are, the level of curiosity is just i i don't know how to describe it i i i find myself seemingly even more curious than i was when i was a child i think that yeah i think that there are some things that i'm very very curious about um and and i feel like i'm growing in that I, I'm just going to be, uh, you know, plain spoken. I feel like this is something I'm really hoping to grow in, in interpersonal connections. Mm. I, you know, I still feel like there's a lot of room to, 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 to remain curious a little bit longer. Um, yeah. To quote Michael Stanger or whatever his name is that wrote the coaching habit. I just think I need to do that. Um, I, I'm just, I'm not done. Uh, the best job I'm getting better to the degree that I have done it. It's, it's just been extremely fruitful. Um, so I want to be, I want to be as I, I, that is, I'll just say this. That's my aim. I feel like that is a very vibrant life. And along with that, we'd go back to the very beginning of this conversation. If you want to live a risky life, start asking a lot of questions. Hmm. Because that's the, that is the natural disruptive force of the universe is questions. And so if you're curious, you will always expose yourself to something meaningfully risky because yeah. it's the doorway to new opportunities and new things. What about this? What if, how would they, you know, all of those kinds of questions 
just keep opening doors and you got to peer into those doors and go, Oh crap. I just opened that. Do I really want to go there? But if you just don't, you know, if all of your internal mental sentences end with a period, well, all the doors stay closed and you never expose right. yourself to anything meaningfully risky and new. And then all the way to the logical extension, your relationships are, are limited because it's in the midst of new that our relationships are really fomented and, and they, yeah. and, and they, there's just something about the relationships that become rich in the midst of new, in particular, our relationship with God. Yeah. God is not a stagnant God. God is recreating constantly. And if we're in a very stagnant self-protective, you know, space, what could we expect in relationship with God? He wants something He's making all things new. Yeah. It's interesting. This has been studied that, that people near the end of life report that the, their number one regret is, is, are the things that they didn't do. It wasn't the things that they didn't fail at. It was the things that they didn't do. It was the risks that they didn't take, whether it was with relationships or career or, or whatever. And, um, I'm I'm happy to hear, my friend, that you are willing to continue taking those risks. This conversation's been outstanding, and I, I have n no doubt that anyone that ends up listening to this will get a ton out of it. So thank you so much for being part of it. Before we wrap the call, would you mind closing us in prayer? Oh, no, the audio cut out. <laughs> right there the audio cut out you turn your phone on mitch <laughs> let's see here let me try there you are you're back don't change it don't, don't change the thing i'll change the thing all right let me pray for us okay yeah uh you're you it got muted again that's strange can you hear me now can you hear me I can't. Okay, so you can hear me right now. now I can't. Can hear me. Okay. Thanks for the opportunity to to explore life with you and what it looks like in our own worlds and what our obstacles are and what it looks like to have you lead us. I pray that whatever was here that was from you would stick in the hearts of the listeners and and in my heart as well. We're thankful, God, that your ultimate desire is to be with us. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, Mitch, th this was awesome. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Thank you. It was great to be with you. God bless. Okay. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. You can contact the show at itsnotmycredittotake.com. We'd love to hear from you. God bless. Thank you.